Hello, this is Brighter Evening, a podcast where we discuss fun, food, and ideas to make the world brighter. Good evening, my name is Josh and this is Brighter Evening. This evening we're going to be talking about taking a, an airplane trip and how to travel like a pro when you're flying somewhere far away by airplane. Uh, I personally feel like leisure travel has been more popular than ever, especially these long distance trips. It's way more common uh, these days than it has been in the past for someone to fly internationally for part of their vacation. Um, I think the, the numbers bear this out. I haven't looked them up recently, but certainly um, airplane flights are becoming far more common than they, than they ever have been in the past. Uh, and that comes down to the relative price having dropped. And there's a lot of reasons for that, um, you know, stemming from the deregulation of the industry quite a few years ago uh, to different budget airlines. And one of the biggest things that's made international air travel more affordable is what's called an ECTOPS rating, which is the rating that allows a twin-engine plane to fly long distances away from an airport. So it's now pretty common to have a twin-engine plane like an A320 or a 737 uh, fly over the ocean, uh, fly over the Atlantic, but there was a long time that the FAA wouldn't allow that. They wouldn't allow flights coming to or from the United States to to fly that that distance because it was too far away from land. but with some additional research, they were able to find that it's actually safe to do. Uh, and so, you know, they made the appropriate changes, and now we have a lot of um, a lot of planes flying. There's all there's a few other pieces to this um, that I think are interesting. Um, you know, if you if you look into the freedoms of aviation, they kind of play into it, especially certain airlines that uh, you may fly. Um, you also have uh, the the rise of these kind of long haul routes because these very long twin jet um, routes that are available now, where you'll have kind of second tier cities connected to one another, whereas before it was more of a hub and spoke network, right, where you'd fly to the major airport and then from the major airport to another major airport. So you might end up with two layovers on a typical flight if you're flying from a kind of tier two city in the United States to a tier two city in, in Europe. So if you're flying from like Pittsburgh to Lyon, there's a good chance that you would fly from Pittsburgh to Philadelphia or Washington or New York to Paris, then from Paris to Lyon. Um, that's less the case today, though it may still be the case. Um, but a lot of these things have kind of worked together to bring down costs and made leisure travel more possible. That said, I know that it is out of reach for a lot of people. Um, and so there, there are some things you can do to, to kind of get a flavor for some of this international travel stuff. Um, one thing that I think is really cool that I've done before and after trips I've gone on, and uh, just what I'm curious is I'll go on Google Maps and look at the Street View, or I'll look at Google Earth and kind of zoom around an area. And with Street View, you can get a bit of a feeling of what it's like to be in an area. And I think that's kind of a cool thing because there's no way you're going to travel to every place on earth, but with this street view possibility, you can see a lot of what's out there. Um, another another way you can kind of get a flavor is to go to restaurants that serve international food. You know, if you've never had Thai food, go to a Thai restaurant and get a fla- feeling for the flavor of Thailand and, and what, what kind of is uh, grown locally in Thailand and what's culturally there. Um, you know, same thing if you can find a Filipino restaurant or an Indonesian restaurant or an Ethiopian restaurant, you can kind of get a flavor. Some of these cultures have very different foods and 
most of it's really great. Um, and if those options aren't available, you can always make recipes. You can look some of this stuff up. Some of the ingredients may be hard to come by, but typically you can order some of that stuff that's harder to find. Uh, I know I've I've liked to make hummus for quite a long time. Uh, it's something you know we had in special occasions with my family growing up, and it was always a little hard to get your hands on tahini, which is a key ingredient. But in recent years, this hummus has become more popular. Uh, it's been much easier to find. Another another good thing you can do to kind of get that flavor for international travel is to talk to people from far away, whether that's people that are foreign that you meet in your day-to-day life and kind of get to know them and get to know their story, or whether it's talking to people on the internet. There's many communities for people from abroad who talk, just want to talk. And uh, I know when I was in French class in high school, that was one of the things that uh, that my French teacher had us do, which was go online and find these chat rooms on, I think it was Yahoo Chat or something. And then you could talk to someone. And what we would do is I would talk, I think I I spoke in French and the person I was speaking to spoke in English. And so that way we could both practice uh, the language. And that was kind of fun for me. I've always been fascinated in the in the broader world. I've always been interested in what's going on outside. When I was younger, I learned about... Um, shortwave radio and the possibility that opened up um, to listen to things that are far away and also uh, with the appropriate license to talk to people that were far away and that was a very exciting prospect to me uh, it's something that you know people who know me know I'm interested in still to this day um, as I got to be a little older started to make uh, more money I've been very fortunate to have the opportunity to travel quite a lot um, some of it was for business a lot of it was for pleasure um, and you know a lot of times I sort of would mix it where if I had an interesting business trip, I would, you know, take vacation afterwards and stay a little bit longer. Um, and having a wife that loves to travel really helped with that. And so my my interest in the broader world has kind of come to also include this aspect of travel. So, um, you know, as as part of this, I'll say that this particular discussion is going to focus on traveling abroad, traveling. Uh, from from your country outside your country. I'm from the United States. That's what the focus is going to be on, because uh, that's that's the experience that I know. I haven't done a tremendous amount of traditional research on this. I haven't you know looked around on a million travel tips websites to come up with my ideas. This is based on my experience and what I've learned and and what I think would be valuable to anyone listening. Um, I will say this. You know, saving up for your trip, even if you don't have a lot of money, you save up for a long enough period of time, just like anything, if it's important to you, you can go do it. Um, you know, that, that trip might be more valuable to you than, than it would otherwise be if you do it. But I'm going to hopefully give you some tips here and some ideas of how you can save some money. Um, so when it comes to overall trip planning, one thing to know is that the best deals come early or they come late. They seldom come in the middle. Uh, so We'll talk about what that means, but just remember, if you buy early, you're probably going to get a good deal, as long as you're not buying several years out when they haven't even set prices yet or something. Um, And last minute, especially for lodging, can be really helpful. So um, part of this, you need to know your goal for the trip. What do you want to see? What do you want to experience? Um, What's key for you? Because if you go somewhere and you see the sights you want to see, you do the things you want to do, you taste the things you want to taste, and you leave, you're going to feel satisfied that you had the experience you wanted to. And you may love or hate the place that you go to. Sometimes you try you go to a place that you think is really neat, and it turns out it's not. And sometimes it goes the other way. You go to a place that is 
you don't have high expectations for and you love it. Um, but you got to know what you want out of the trip. You're trying to see as many places in as short a period of time as possible. You're trying to hit certain major landmarks that you've seen on postcards and in movies before, or you're trying to go a little bit deeper. Um, I think that it's better to go a little bit deeper, um, especially if you're going to a major city, because the major landmarks that everyone knows are going to be super packed, and it's going to be hard to have a great experience. But if you go to some of the the less common landmarks, even ones that are still very famous, you might have a, a much better experience because it won't be so crowded. Um, I also think as part of any trip I take, I want to find some way to get a flavor for the local area. A lot of times for me that'll come in the form of going to a grocery store because that's a real good window onto the into the day-to-day life of people that live in the area. Uh, but it could be going to church, it could be um, traveling into you know, a suburb, it could be any number of things that get you a little bit exposed into the daily life of people that live there. If you have a contact in that city, maybe you make it online, maybe it's a friend that moved there, um, whatever it is, that can be great because then they can invite you into their life for a few days and you can get a feeling for what, what they, how they, how they live their life. That's one of the coolest things about traveling is seeing all the things that are similar and all the things that are different in day-to-day life. There are some things that you just take for granted that are super uncommon when you travel abroad, and then there's some things you might think are weird that everyone are doing. Uh, one of the one of the best examples of that for me is in, in the United States and Canada, drinking root beer is a super common thing. I'm sure I'm going to do an episode on root beer in the not-too-distant future. Man, abroad, people don't drink it, they've never heard of it, and when they do try it, they think it tastes like medicine. And man, if medicine tastes like that, I'd I'd be much more happy taking medicine, I'll tell you. But that's not the commonly shared belief around the world. So it's a really interesting thing, something that's so culturally normal that isn't. Um, all right, so let's let's talk about how we buy things to save money. So uh, I I talked to uh, someone at work about a recent trip that I took, and he's he's traveled quite a lot more than me. He's an older guy than me, and he estimated a price. And it was about twice what we actually paid for the trip. And so there's some some ways that we accomplished that. I want to talk talk you through those, and hopefully, um, as you as you understand the approach that we took, you'll be able to find some some of this and, and use it if you want to take a, a vacation. You'll be able to use it and and use that as a way to help you save money and and get the trip you want. So I will first say that. If you're going to be taking a big trip, uh, any vacation is expensive, um, an international vacation especially. However, if you analyze your trip well and you pick the right destinations and do the right things, an international trip is not significantly more expensive than a domestic trip, at least for a small group, a small family. Um, the big expense difference in many cases is the transportation. So if you're flying overseas, and you have to pay for two, three, four, five tickets versus driving. Um, that's that's going to be your biggest price difference. The rest of it, you, if you're a little bit careful, can not spend so much. Uh, you can compare all the things that you would be doing in a vacation, right? You need a hotel or an Airbnb or a home rental or something. You need some place to sleep. You need to buy food. Um, and there, there are deals to be had in that kind of thing anywhere you go. So the first thing I'd say is as part of the vacation, if you can afford a longer vacation, if you have the time off to get a longer vacation, for, when you go international, 
try to go longer because um, you get to you get to spread out the cost of that airplane ticket over more days. Now that's balanced out by the fact that you have to pay for lodging and food for more days. So this is really saying if you can manage it, if you've got say two weeks of vacation that you want to take during the year as actual vacation or four weeks or whatever it is where you live in your company, take like those two weeks for the big trip and rather than two smaller vacations where you fly to wherever for a week and then come back and do a second vacation, um, you'll save a lot on the transportation costs that way. So when you go buy plane tickets, um, there's a couple of websites that I would recommend looking at. One is Skyscanner and the other is Google Flights. Those are the best ones as of today. There may be better ones in the future. These ones may get better. They may get worse. Who knows? But they both have some really key features. And these are the key features you need to look for on any site when you're trying to find good deals on plane tickets. Number one is the date grid. So if you pick a pair of cities, you want to be able to see if I change the date by one or two days, how does that affect things? It's typically cheapest to fly on Tuesdays, um, oftentimes Thursdays as well, if you're doing an international flight. That's not always the case. Sometimes Saturdays are cheap too. So you can look at that and take advantage of it. Um, if you're flying from the United States to Europe, you're typically going to be taking a nighttime flight there and an afternoon flight on the way back. If you think about the time zones for a while, you'll understand why that's the case. Nothing else really makes sense in most cases. Uh, keep that in mind as you're planning because the day that you leave, you may actually be able to work and save a vacation day, or you can use that day to plan and pack. But regardless, that that view of, of the date grid is really important because then you can look and say, if I change my dates a little bit, what happens? Um, another big one, and this is the reason I talk about Skyscanner and I talk about Google Flights, is being able to set a vague destination. Skyscanner, they have everywhere as a potential destination. Uh, I think they have other ones that are more vague like that. You can just put a country in. I want to go to Spain. I want to go to Cambodia, and it'll figure out what cities are available. Uh, if you're going to Google Flights, they'll actually let you put a continent in. I want to fly to Asia. I want to fly to Europe. Now, this gives you a lot of possibilities because the hardest part about these long-distance trips is actually crossing the ocean or crossing continents. Once you're there, you've got options to move to other cities that you want to. So maybe you end up flying into Frankfurt and you want to go to London. That might not that might be a cheaper way to go than flying directly to London. It might not, but it's a possibility and it's something you can look at. Uh, same thing, right? Maybe you maybe you want to go to Phnom Penh, Cambodia, but it's a cheap deal to get to Thailand. So you go to Bangkok and then take a small plane or take a bus or whatever. There's So th that's one of the key things to look at. How do you find a cheap ticket? Well, when it's vacation, you've got some flexibility. And especially if you're going to places you've never been before, maybe one place is just as good as the other to you. You know, you, you have some options. So take a look at these different points of entry into the area, into the region of the world, and then you can kind of evaluate what comes from there. So that's one key thing. Uh, another key thing is the airlines. You got to be willing to go for budget airlines. So when we, when I've flown internationally before, especially my early experiences, they were with um, domestic airlines, U.S. airlines flying abroad, and I've flown with some foreign carriers. 
and that was the majority of my early experience flying internationally. And I'll say that typically the foreign flag carriers are nicer than the domestic carriers on an international flight. The planes just seem a little nicer, the little bit more leg room, that kind of thing. Uh, but you'll you'll do fine with any of them, and all the sort of standard carriers, you know, your U.S. Airways and and um, you know British Airways, all those kind of companies. If you're getting a normal ticket, normal coach ticket, you're going to be able to check some bags, and you're going to be able to you know take a stroller and all that kind of stuff, and that's all included. Um, if you're going with a budget airline, the rules are different. They're probably not going to allow you to check a bag. And the size you're allowed as a carry-on is going to be fairly restricted. So this is a key thing to saving money, too, is understanding the baggage sizes and using that to your advantage. Uh, so if you go on a budget airline, I've had good experiences with them. Just know that you know you need to plan out for food, whether you're going to pay for food on the airplane or you're going to bring some food. Again, if you're flying on one of these overnight flights, you're probably not going to be that hungry anyways. You can eat on your way to the airport or at the airport. A lot of people don't realize this. While the TSA doesn't allow you to bring liquids through security, you could bring a whole turkey dinner minus the knives and forks and be just fine, right? So you can you can pack a bunch of subs from Subway that you bought for five bucks each and bring them in, no problem. Eat them at the airport if you want to save money. If not, you can eat in the airport. Every airport's got at least one restaurant near the gate. Um, usually there's, there's a lot more options if you're going into an international terminal. But you know, plan that part out. So uh, baggage sizes, we're going to talk about that in, when we start talking about packing. Um, but I do want to talk about one other piece of this. And that is if you go with a budget airline, there is a risk of bankruptcy by the airline. Now this may sound like an, a weird thing to think about, but I've been on two different airlines that have gone bankrupt. Um, now, they didn't go bankrupt while I was on them. Uh, one of them is still in business. The other one is not. Uh, the first one, Wow Airlines, I flew on that airline if, uh, a few times for various reasons. They went out of business, not, not any time I was planning a trip, but they stranded a whole lot of people. The other one was Thomas Cook. Uh, was on a trip. They went out of business recently, and I was on a trip with their subsidiary. And when they went out of business it wasn't clear if our subsidiary was going to stay in business. They had hundreds of thousands of people stranded. So if you're on a budget airline, it pays to do your research to make sure that it's a reliable company and that they're not likely to go out of business. The most common time for budget airlines to go out of business is in the fall, after the summer rush, Um, especially budget airlines in Europe because of the summer rush being so concentrated. Budget airlines in the United States tend to be a little bit more spread out in their traffic because of Thanksgiving. Um, you know, they get a, a huge boost of traffic in Thanksgiving, which helps a lot. Um, so they've, they've got kind of a cultural thing that's built in to help them. But pay attention to that. Uh, fall is the most common time, uh, but it, it could be any time of year. So you can do a little bit of research on the airline and see. Um, you might buy uh, travel insurance through your credit card. Uh, just do your, you know, do do your due diligence on that because if you are on a tight budget and you get stranded abroad, you're going to be in a very stressful situation. Even if you're not on a tight budget, trust me, it's a stressful situation if you don't know if you're going to be able to fly home. So do what you need to do to plan for that um, and and make it something that's not stressful. So that's airplanes. Um, looking for good deal flights, I would say. Uh, Fall is actually a really great time to look for flights. Um, 
because it's it's after the summer rush. Um, I think I've got some notes to talk about this later, but you know, if you've got the flexibility, traveling in the end of spring or the beginning of fall is great because you still have good weather. You still have relatively long days if you're uh, assuming you're you're talking about the same uh, seasons and the destination you're going. You're staying in the same uh, hemisphere, north or south. You know, you'll still get good length days so you can see more of the city. Not as much as if it's like mid-July towards the longest day of the year, but still a decent amount of daylight, nice warm weather, maybe some chill. You got you to plan for where you're going, but it's a good time because you're going to likely be able to get better deals than you can in the middle of summer. If you're flying in August, it's hard to get a good deal. Um, all right, so hotels. There's basically two strategies I have for hotels in general. One is to book relatively early and plan out what I want, where I want. Um, the other is to buy a hotel at the very last minute. I've done this a bunch of times with apps like Priceline and, and websites like that. Usually it's fine. Usually it's fine. But there is the case, you know, that something could could be going on wherever you're headed, and there might not be a lot of hotel options. This happened to to me once, not on a, an international trip, but on a road trip to Philadelphia. We got into Philadelphia, and there was a cheerleading competition going on, and almost every hotel room was booked up. So normally when we tried something like that in Philadelphia, we'd end up staying in the city. This time we stayed way out past the airport in a not-so-nice hotel for more than we normally would pay doing it you know, the way we had. So that is a risk that you're going to run if you do a last-minute. If you're crazy enough, you can do that last-minute thing abroad. It does work. You know, if you've got cell service, price line, um, will we'll work abroad. Um, so you'll get some good deals um, that way, but it is risky. You know, but, but just try to narrow things down and, and decide if last minute's going to work for you. Uh, the situations where it will work for you are if the risk of not getting the hotel in the area you want aren't very big. Um, the, the time that that's the case, like if you have a car and you can drive really easily, there are some cases where as you get closer to the hour, if the place is fairly full, the prices will go up instead of down. That's happened to me before as well. So you're taking, taking on some risk, but the reward is sometimes you'll get a really cool hotel at a very low price in a great area, especially if you're booking at nine at night and the, the area isn't heavily booked. Um, I'll also say, hotels versus Airbnbs. When it comes to it, I think if you're going to stay for only a day in some area, let's say you're passing through a city, a hotel is a much better choice than an Airbnb because if you stay at a hotel, it's a very easy, simple transaction. A lot of Airbnbs have a minimum of two or three days. And so you're going to be restricting the the stock of available places to stay if you're only doing a couple day or only doing a day. Once you get to two days or three days, Airbnbs start to be an option. Airbnbs really, the strategy there is to go early and try to find something that is close to whatever transportation method you're using. So if you're going into a, a major international city, it's probably going to be a bus or a metro stop that needs to be nearby, depending on the the area. Um, you know, you can take the subway from by your place. Great. Um, it's just something you got to check out. Um, in terms of Airbnbs, my recommendation is that you want to use the tools in Airbnb. Know that 
the instant booking stuff, you don't need host approval. That's super helpful because it means it's an easier transaction. Uh, they don't sort by price, which can be a little bit tricky if you're on a budget, but they do have a tool that lets you squeeze things down. So you can, you can use filters for the number of people. Um, you can squeeze the price down into this, this lower end range. You can make some other adjustments in the tools there to help you find places that are good. I'll also say if you're traveling alone, don't be scared to use a shared Airbnb. Um, I, I've used them before and it's not a big deal, especially if you're looking to travel inexpensively. Uh, it can be a really big help to just, you know, stay in a spare bedroom at someone's house. Um, you're not going to be there a lot probably anyways. You're going to be there to sleep, be there to shower, and you're going to be out the rest of the day. Uh, trains. So another thing to consider is trains. Um, land transportation, once you get somewhere, is a big deal. Um, Trains tend to be competitive with airplanes for distances up to 300 miles, 500 kilometers. Beyond that, airplanes tend to be better. There's a lot of reasons for that economically. One of the biggest ones is that you need more employees on a train and they have to work longer for the same distance. So once you kind of take out the security screening stuff, you know, you get this, this range where trains make sense. In some countries, um, some regions of the world, Europe in particular, Trains are a great way to travel, even relatively long distances, because the, the system is relatively inexpensive and well-connected. Um, in fact, in some countries, it might be necessary to get around. There might not be better alternatives. Um, but, you know, just do a little research. Make sure it's not overly sketchy. Um, make sure it's it's a good train system. I will say this, that I wouldn't recommend the URL passes. They don't really save you that much money. It looks like they will. But in reality, they're just kind of a pain to use and uh, keep track of. So if you are heading to Europe and, and trains are part of your plan, I just stick to regular train tickets. You'll probably save money if you plan it out even a little bit. Uh, if you really have no idea what you're doing and you're just floating from uh, hostel to hostel, then there you go. And hostels are another way to save money. Hostels are... You know, kind of like the shared room type of Airbnb or shared place Airbnb. Hostels are a shared version of a hotel. So you'll be typically in a room with several other people. You know, you each get your own bed. There's a shared bathroom. Uh, hostels tend to be targeted towards youth, but they'll accept people of different ages. Um, it's a rowdier crowd typically. And, you know, you're, you're in a shared environment, so it's probably less conducive to traveling with a family. But the big benefit and cost if you're traveling with just one or two people is there. If you're traveling with two or three people, though, or five people, and you're all staying in one hotel room, well, once you divide that cost out, right, hostels generally charge per bed, or which is per person, um, or both, right? They might charge per, per bed or per person. Um so if that's the case, you know, five times whatever their low rate is doesn't stay that low. Um, so that's kind of where that is. Uh, I guess the last thing is loyalty programs. Um, if you're going to be traveling a lot, loyalty pro programs make sense. Um, you know, if you're going with a particular hotel chain or something, there's no reason not to sign up for the free loyalty programs, but be careful if you're going to spend money. If, unless you're going to travel a lot, maybe you're traveling for business, those loyalty programs don't often make much sense. All right, so let's move on to packing. Um, and I have a lot to say about packing. <laughs> uh, 
Packing is the key to traveling on a budget and having a great trip. My number one piece of advice is to pack light. Don't pack a ton of stuff. The biggest benefit is, you know, you'll walk around and you'll have everything in this small bag that's with you and you'll look over and you'll see some person who's younger and cooler than you, but they've got this giant bag and they've got this other bag and then maybe they're carrying a, you know, it's a woman carrying a purse and you're looking over and you're like feeling pretty good about yourself. Maybe that's not the biggest benefit, but it feels like it. Um, I definitely had that experience my most recent international trip where I felt like, man, why, why are they carrying so much stuff? So if you're going to pack light, um, I think the goal, one of the main goals is to not check luggage. And if you do check luggage, that means your planning and your packing is much more complicated and, and much more important because there is a non-zero chance that your luggage will get lost. And if that happens... You want to make sure you've got enough stuff with you that you're not going to have a bad trip. So that's going to mean some stuff for your electronics, uh, like your your phone chargers or whatever. You're going to want to have uh, at least one or two changes of clothes with you. Um, you know, any medicines that you need, all that kind of stuff. You want to make sure you have available in your carry-on. Um, but if you can avoid it altogether, that's even better. So the first key is to buy the right luggage. I've been known to buy new luggage for a trip just to make sure I get the dimensions right. I don't buy expensive luggage to do that, not normally at least. But if if you're in a situation where you're going to be taking a lot of plane trips, right? So you're going to look at uh, discount carriers within a continent once you get there. You might have to figure out some piece of luggage that's the lowest common denominator in terms of their dimensions and weight and then pack accordingly. But that's that's how I do it. I take a look at the carriers I'm going to be on and I make sure that the luggage that I, I already have or the luggage that I'm going to buy meets the specifications of that carrier. I don't want there to be any question that when I get there, like, oh, you've got to check this bag or you've got to pay an extra penalty because your your bag was one inch too long. I want to make sure that I'm going to come in under that. Part of that's weight. A lot of carriers um, have some weight restrictions whether they're going to be checked or carry on. It just depends, but my recommendation is to buy a luggage scale. They're not very expensive, less than $10. They're small. You can take them with you. It's great because then you can tell if your luggage, any individual piece or any group is too big, too heavy, you can repack before you get to the airport. I know it's happened to me before. I've seen it happen to other people. They've got a bag to check or a carry-on bag or something, and they get up to the counter the person's giving them the ticket and they find out that their bag is too heavy and so they're frantically taking stuff out of the bag and putting it in a different bag to get the weight distributed properly. That's such a pain at the airport and your underwear is falling on the ground and getting dirty and you don't know how many people have stepped in that spot and your your shirt's got a, some dust on it and it's, you know, some black mark from the floor. You don't even know what it is. Like, that's horrible. And, and who knows if you're going to lose something in that situation because usually you pack and you're like, oh, well, I'm done packing. And then this happens and you're, you're not ready for it. So that avoid that. Get a luggage scale. Um, there's some other things you can do to avoid that, which we'll talk about in a second. Um, but yeah, luggage scale, super valuable, and they're super lightweight. There's electronic ones. There's analog ones. Both are great. Um, I've got an electronic one recently. I like it a lot, but I've had an analog one, and it was just fine too. Um, so let's talk about what to pack. Uh, clothes are a key thing. And this is one of the things I really strategize on a lot before I leave on a long trip uh, or, or an exciting adventure. 
number one thing is I plan out the number of shirts, pants, socks, and underwear I'm going to wear, right? The, the normal clothes. Um, I'm also going to be thinking about the weather. Is it hot weather? Is it cold weather? Is it going to change a lot? If I'm going somewhere with cold weather, I'm going to try to take layers. And I'm going to try to take some things that are light but provide a lot of warmth, like a long john top that I can wear underneath. Um, I'm going to consider what sort of coat to take. You know, maybe it's waterproof if I'm expecting rain this season. Um, maybe it's a lighter jacket if I'm expecting weather in the you know mid-60s or something. Um, if it's going to be hot weather, I'm going to pack maybe more t-shirts, more shorts, that kind of stuff. Um, whatever's going to be comfortable in the in the climate. Now, there's also something to be said when planning out your clothing to maybe want to, you want to fit in a little bit with the environment you're in. So if you're going to a place where it's not really common to wear shorts out on the street, maybe you only pack one pair and you use that when you're not out on the street. Or maybe you don't pack any at all. On the other hand, maybe you don't care. Um, you know, that's that's really kind of a personal decision of, of how much you want to stand out as a tourist versus how much you want to fit in. Both are kind of fun. Um, the downside of standing out as a tourist is you get the people coming up to you going, hey, uh, you want to buy this this keychain? It's only $4. And you're like, I don't want to buy that. You know, they just keep hassling you because they know you're a, a tourist. So if you don't look like a tourist, you're less likely to get that. Um, so as you plan out the number of shirts, pants, socks, and underwear, one of the big paradigm shifts for me was realizing that I don't need to pack enough clothes for my entire trip. Um, you know, originally when I'd pack for a week-long vacation, I'd have seven pairs of underwear and seven or eight pairs of socks and however many shirts that I felt like I needed for seven days. But in reality, if you're traveling for that many days, you can wash your clothes. There's laundromats in every city. Even small cities have laundromats. So you just plan out how many times you want to go to the laundromat on your trip. Now, I know the answer is zero, but... If you're going for two weeks and you're willing to go to the laundromat maybe two or three times, you only need to take about four changes of or four sets of clothing, including the ones you're wearing. That means you can pack very light. If you say, well, I'm only willing to go once and you're going for two weeks, now you need to have seven changes of clothes. That's a lot. And you're talking about a lot more stuff. And this goes back to packing light. If you're going to be very mobile during your trip, maybe you're going to be going to different cities or you're going to be seeing a lot of stuff, maybe changing between different hotels in different parts of a city, or you're going to different cities in a country. Whatever it is that you're doing, the more stuff you have, the more you have to deal with. So packing light means not carrying so much heavy stuff. It means you can have an easier time since if you have a bunch of big suitcases, they're really hard to take through the metro and on a bus, but they're you know easy to take on a taxi, so now you're paying for a taxi. You can avoid all that, right? Step back a little bit think about this. I generally take somewhere between three and five days worth of clothing whenever I travel. Um, four tends to be about the sweet spot. And then I plan it on a complicated trip. I'll plan in advance where I'm going to change my, wash my clothes, when I'm going to do it. So I know, you know, this is a complicated trip. We're going to several cities. In this city, that's going to be laundry day. Uh, we're going to do that in the morning because this is a day where we're doing this. Um, I kind of plan that stuff out in advance. I don't get down to where exactly the laundromat is. I'll usually look that up or find that out when we get to the location, but it's definitely a thing we do. Um, also, think about this when you're thinking about what clothes to wear. If you are wearing a coat, 
you can actually stick some stuff in your coat pockets if you're worried about weight. So this could be um, like battery banks or things like that that are a little bit heavy and compact. That might be a convenient thing to do to, to kind of help balance out your weight. Um, also keep in mind that coats and stuff like that tend to be bulky and heavy. So if you can get them into your or wear them while you're on the plane rather than getting them into your bag, you can avoid checking that. When you get to your destination, it is possible that you you know, bring an extra bag. In fact, that's one of the things I recommend is that you bring a spare bag. If you have a spare bag, um, it can be really convenient because you can leave your bigger stuff at your hotel or wherever you're staying and you have this empty bag you use it as a day bag so you can put drinks and snacks in it. So if you're you know out for an extended period of time, you have some water to drink or if you can't find a restaurant for a while, you've got you know some trail mix or, or apples or whatever it is you stick in there. It gives you some options. And so if you're in a, in a time of year like fall where the weather can change a lot from day to day, you don't have to bring your coat out with you, but you have it there as an option. Uh, you can you can also use that that spare bag to stick your um, like like kind of long john type shirt or long sleeve shirt that you're going to wear. If if it gets too cold, you can stick that in your bag. So that way, you know maybe you're out in the middle of the day and it's hot, you can take that off and put it on. The spare bag is really helpful. The trick with a spare bag is to get like an all cloth backpack that's very light or something along those lines so it's something that's easy to carry around and easy to flatten down and not take up much space. Um, and on, on the most recent complicated trip we did, we went overseas, we went to a lot of countries, as one I was alluding to earlier. We were traveling like crazy. We did everything with three backpacks and a stroller, right? It was very minimal and you know we did have that spare bag. We used that pretty frequently, but there were times because of the nature of our trip where we had to carry all of our stuff with us and we carried all of our stuff with us and still saw sights at the same time because we were traveling light enough that that was possible. Um, you should plan on packing some snacks for your trip. You can take eat these on in the airport, you can eat these on the airplane, or you can eat them when you're out. But plan on it, plan on buying some when you get there. You can always buy toiletries when you get there as well. Um, they sell just about everything you'll need in a drugstore. The only thing I, I put as a caveat with that is if you've got a particular brand of deodorant that you like or a particular brand of toothpaste, those two things in particular, I feel like people are pretty brand loyal. I know I've, I've got my loyalties, especially on the deodorant side. Like You might not be able to find that where you're going, so keep that in mind. But other stuff, it should be fine. You may have some language difficulties if you're trying to get something like a medicine from a pharmacy uh, if you don't speak the local language. But other than that, um, I wouldn't worry. And even, even so... If you're in, in a pharmacy, there's a good chance that someone there will speak English. Um, and if not, you know, there's always Google Translate. There's always pointing. You can get a, a dictionary that's, you know, from English to whatever language, and you can point, right? You can, you can always make communication work if you try. Let's talk about electronics. Electronics is a key thing. Um, because everyone's got to have their cell phone today, and you're, you're going to... First of all, want to take a million pictures when you go on a cool trip like this. Um, I mean, it's it's not uncommon to take something like 200 pictures a day when you're on a trip like this because you just see so many interesting things. You know, you see these houses that have the coolest colors you've seen, and you're looking at a canal, and and then you see these, you know, all this stuff, right? You want to take pictures of that. So you want to make sure that when you get on your trip, you're doing it in a way that you can take all the pictures you want, you can make any calls you want, you feel comfortable. So the first thing you need to know about is dual voltage electronics. 
the United States, about half of Japan, Canada, um, some countries in Central and South America, Mexico, use 120-volt power. Countries in other parts of the world, so most of Asia, all of Europe, um, Australia, New Zealand, they use 240-volt power. 120-240, right? Very different. 120-volt power um, is, is what you're going to be traveling with in the United States. Um, you, when you go abroad, you need to make sure that your equipment is dual voltage. Any modern cell phone charger is going to be dual voltage, right? If, it, if you're talking about something with a, you know, like an iPhone or an Android phone, definitely going to be dual voltage. You can always read on your charger to make sure that it is. Some equipment is not dual voltage, right? There are razors and stuff like that that use a transformer style um, power adapter. Those are probably not dual voltage, so you need to read carefully and just make sure that everything you bring to a country that uses a different voltage than you is dual voltage. When you go into the country, um, there's a good chance they might be using a different plug, right? Most of Europe uses a certain plug. Uh, Asia has a variety of plugs depending on where you are. Australia has a plug that looks like the U.S. plug, but angry because the, the pins are kind of at an angle. Um, you see different plugs in different places. Before you go, buy a plug adapter, and I'll say I am not a fan of universal adapters. It's not that expensive to go buy a handful of adapters that are specific to the region you're going to. They're much smaller and much more convenient. If you're going to London or somewhere in England where they use that weird huge plug that it's very well engineered but it's also very large, you might even get one with the USB built in. You can even get direct USB um, things to charge your electronics if all you're bringing is phones. But, you know, these, these uh, plug adapters are super convenient, but be aware that most plug adapters don't adapt voltage, so that's why the dual voltage stuff is so important. Um, you've also got the the thought of bringing extension cords. I generally do bring an extension cord in, uh, but I am aware that you're putting the wrong voltage into it. That's not really a problem because the, there's not going to be any issue with the wires, but it is more dangerous if you were to touch one of the contacts, so it's something to be aware of uh, if you're going from a lower voltage to a higher voltage. Obviously, if you're coming from from Australia to the United States, then there's no risk, right? Um, or a lower risk, I should say. But if you bring an extension cord, that gives you more options of things to plug in. Let's say you're bringing like a laptop or something that needs a more powerful charger. Um, you can take advantage of that. You can also, um, potentially with certain types of laptops and certain types of phones and stuff, just do everything through USB. That's becoming more possible with USB-C devices. Um, if you do that, just bring one that's sufficiently powerful to charge everything. But do keep in mind that you're probably going to be charging a few things. You might have some sort of USB headset, your phone, your spouse's phone, a tablet, a laptop. So keep in mind like all the things you need to charge and how you're going to do it. I have one charger that supports some of the high-speed stuff, um, high-speed charging standards. So I'll use that to charge cell phones um, and then Maybe I'll switch off to charge the USB headset because that doesn't take too long. Uh, and then during the day, maybe I charge the tablet or during you know a certain time of night, I charge the tablet. So it's something you got to balance. But typically, I feel like I need at least three USB ports, which usually comes from two different USB adapters. Um, there are some new adapters that are out there using a different uh, chemistry for the transistor that adapts power called GAN. 
just reading about, and those adapters are able to provide high levels of power in a much more compact form factor. So that's something that's pretty exciting because you could get one or two of those and you'd be able to, say, charge a USB-C laptop with them without um, without having this, this large amount of bulk. Um, USB cables, you should bring probably at least one spare USB cable, maybe two. That way you can keep some on you and have some with your uh, equipment back at the back of the hotel or whatever. Um, battery banks, I think, are also really great. I'll say a few things about battery banks because I've made some mistakes here. There are some very high capacity battery banks. High capacity means very large. So I wouldn't go over maybe seven to 10,000 milliamp hours. 10,000 is on the large side. If you do get one, make sure it has smooth edges so when you put it in your pocket, it doesn't hurt. But 5,000 to 7,000 is probably better because it's smaller. If you've got a large phone, that will give you probably two charges, like one with a large screen. If you have a smaller phone, uh, that'll probably give you like three charges. So that should be enough throughout the day. Most of the time, no matter what I'm doing, taking videos and pictures, I don't need to do more than a you know single boost charge on my phone. But I know that there are people whose batteries last less than mine, so you can go get an extra battery bank. There are also battery banks that fit around your phone as a case. I really like these because when you're out traveling, they're super convenient because you can just turn it on and charge. I don't like the bulk that it adds. It also blocks the NFC reader, so if you want to use Samsung Pay or Google Pay or Android Pay or, or whatever NFC feature your phone has, um, you're, you're kind of blocked from doing that. So I have one of these, and what I typically do with it is I'll keep it in my bag, and when my battery gets down to, say, 30-some percent or 40 percent, I'll put it on, turn it on, and continue using the phone. Within an hour, the phone's up to 90% or 100% or something like that, and I'll just take it off, and then I can go the rest of the day without charging it, and I still have another you know, charge or two in reserve if I need it. Um, that's been a good strategy for me. It's been really nice because I only need to have that one. The downside to that strategy is that battery bank only works for my phone because uh, my wife's got a different model of phone, so it doesn't fit on hers. Um, so, you know, I, I generally, tend, generally tend to take a couple of battery banks to take care of that. Moving on on the, on the packing theme, when you pack, you need to be ready for the TSA. Um, we'll talk more about what, what that means, but really it just comes down to having your stuff easily accessible that should be accessible for the TSA. So liquids, laptops, tablets, stuff like that. Um, when you pack, these are the things that are going to help you. Keep those things easily accessible. And I'll give you a, a little bit more complete of a list. You should easily be able to get to your medicines if you need them. Snacks, liquids, right? Those should be in a plastic bag so that you don't have to mess with anything. You just pull it out, stick it in the thing for the TSA. Uh, your laptop or tablet and charging cables. Um, if you're going to charge inside an airplane, you may have to plug into one of those little jacks in the airplane, the USB jacks. But if you're charging in the airport, you're better off if you can do it to plug into the uh, outlet and use your outlet adapter because security-wise, it's better and you'll probably get a faster charge. But those are the things you want to keep handy because those are the ones you're going to need. So when you pack, put those in kind of an outer zipper or somewhere that's easier to get to. There's a product called Packing Cubes. There's a bunch of companies that make them. Uh, I can't necessarily recommend any specific one, but may, you know, maybe in the future I will. Packing cubes are really helpful. You can stick your clothes or whatever in them, 
and it makes packing a lot easier because now you have different segments packaged up and if you need to move things between things or you know you need to have an extra bag all of a sudden for some reason you've already got stuff in that bag it it makes it easier to get your packing right and to manage your weight they do add a little bit of weight but it's a very very small amount of weight and um, on, on this most recent complicated trip that we did we uh, we definitely took advantage of that and it helped us a lot I'd, I'd also recommend bringing extra plastic bags both like the one liter one uh, one quart TSA liquid bags but also you know some plastic grocery bags plastic small sandwich bags all those kind of bags I mean you don't have to bring a bunch of them but just having a few of them handy is super helpful there is a lot more to talk about in this topic we're going to stop here, and we'll continue on in part two another time. I hope I've made your evening brighter. This is Josh. Thank you for listening to Brighter Evening. I hope I've made your evening brighter. You can subscribe to us by RSS on Google or Apple Podcasts or anywhere else you get your podcasts. For more information on the show or this episode, please visit brightervening.com.